and pull it up on a device, do that. It helps if you can see it yourself. It helps if you can look at the text with your own eyes because it's our authority. So Ezra chapter 1, and once you get there, let's pray. Father, we we thank you for your word. We thank you for all of your word. None of it is by mistake. None of it is unnecessary extra. All the Bible is your word. And so we want to treasure it, God. We want to learn from it. We want to be changed by it. So would you do that in us as we begin a journey through the book of Ezra? Would you help us to see, God, what's there? Not just to see it in the text, we want that, God, but to trust you as you reveal yourself through your word. Help us, God. Work among us by the Spirit. Help us even now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're beginning the book of Ezra. If you haven't caught on to that, we're starting a new book. We just finished 1 Timothy. We're starting the book of Ezra. It's in the Old Testament. It's in probably the first third of your Bible, Ezra. If you don't know the story of Ezra, we'll give a little background, give an overview of the book, and then we're actually going to dive into chapter 1. So here's a little background and an introduction. God brought... Israel out of Egypt. Many of you know this story. The Israelites were slaves in Egypt, and God brought an entire nation out of the midst of another nation. And he kept them in the wilderness for 40 years because they were disobedient to him. He promised them, though, that he would bring them out of Egypt through the wilderness, and he would give them the land of Canaan. If they obeyed him, if they feared him, the land would be theirs forever. But if they didn't obey him, he would cast them out. So listen, this is Deuteronomy 28. Okay, so Deuteronomy is the people have spent their 40 years in the wilderness, and now they're standing on the edge of the promised land. They're right on the verge of going in, and this is what God says to them. This is Deuteronomy 28. God says... If you are not careful to do all the words of this law, you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of. And the Lord, this is verse 64 in Deuteronomy 28, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. Okay, so that's just the setup. I mean, God tells them from the very beginning Here's what's going to happen if you obey. Here's what's going to happen if you disobey, if you disregard my law. And that's exactly what happened. If you've you've read your Old Testament, there, there are encouraging moments. God's faithfulness is throughout it. But the people, by and large, remain unchanged. I mean, time after time, God disciplines them in his faithfulness. He calls them to return. He'll send them prophets, occasionally a good king. And for maybe 
15, 20 years, people will start to follow the Lord, and then that good king or that prophet disappears, and the people go right back to living however they want. And so, God keeps his promise. He does exactly what he said he would do from the start. First, he sends the nation of Assyria. Assyria comes and takes away the 10 northern tribes of Israel away to Assyria, and they never come back. That's 723 BC. They never come back. And then God sends the nation of Babylon to the southern kingdom of Judah, and he takes away the people of Judah, Benjamin, and their priests. That happened in 586. If you've heard the king Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar comes to Jerusalem. He overthrows the city. He destroys the temple, and he takes all the people, except the very poorest, away. Think about how catastrophic this is. If you've been in church for a while, you're just used to this story, but think about how catastrophic it would be if someone came to your home country, took all of the citizens away. It's a death sentence for your nation. You're finished. Except God promised that they weren't finished. He promised, I'm going I'm to do exactly what I said I would do in Deuteronomy 28, but I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to restore you. We'll see that in a minute. We'll see that promise in a minute. In 539 BC, Babylon gets overthrown by the kingdom of Persia. And their king, Cyrus, you just saw him in Ezra chapter 1, he issues a decree that the Jews can go back to Jerusalem and they can rebuild the temple. And that's where this book starts. So that's the background to Ezra, and Ezra starts there. King Cyrus has overthrown Babylon, and he said, all you Jews who were taken away, you can go back, and you can rebuild your temple. Now, the Jews will return in three groups, three waves of returning exiles, okay? And this is just so you understand more of how your Bible fits together. The first two groups are talked about in Ezra. The third group is talked about in the book of Nehemiah. So if you're wondering, wait, wait, we just read about the Jews returning from exile. Why are they doing it again? It's because they came in three waves. This book's going to cover the first two. Chapters 1 through 6 of the book of Ezra talk about the first group of exiles returning. And when they return, they're going to rebuild the temple. That's chapters 1 through 6. In chapter 7, the second wave comes, and they're led out of Persia by Ezra. That's when Ezra comes on the scene. This book's named after him. He doesn't show up until chapter 7. But 7 through 10 is dealing with that second wave of exiles that come. Except when this second wave comes, their problem is not that they need to rebuild a building. First group needed to rebuild the temple. The problem for the second group is they show up, the temple's ready, and they realize that they're just the same as the Israelites before when the temple was destroyed. That's their big problem. They go, we've got this temple. We can 
worship in the right way. The only problem is we're just like those Israelites who were destroyed before. That's what the second half of the book is about. I had a professor. He described it this way, the book of Ezra. He said the first six chapters are rebuilding a broken temple. The last four chapters, 7, 8, 9, 10, are about reviving a faithless people. And I think that's right. I think that's what's going on in this book. That's a brief overview, very brief overview, of the way the book of Ezra is broken down. Now, as we turn to chapter 1, it's setting the stage. This is that first group. This is the decree that the very first group is allowed to go back to Jerusalem after they've been exiled and the temple's been destroyed. And what we're going to see is that behind it all, behind this massive move in history, is a God who's in control. That's what we'll see The main point, I mean, if you had to put the main point in a sentence, it's this. God moves the hearts of men and women because he's committed to keeping his promises. God moves the hearts of men and women because he's committed to keeping his promises. So we're going to look at chapter one. Really, this sermon, you could just break it in half. So the first first part of the sermon, we're going to talk about the fact that God moves the hearts of men and women. He's the one who does it. And in the second half of the sermon, we'll talk about the reason. The reason he does that is because he's committed to keeping his promises. So let's look at God and how he moves the hearts of men and women in this passage. Verses 1 through 4. I'm going to read it. If you've got it in front of you, you can read along with me. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he's charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He's the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that's in Jerusalem. So the book starts off. Very first verse claiming that when Cyrus issues a decree to allow an entire people, if they want, to leave his nation and go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, verse 1 is claiming when he did that, it's because God made him do it. Very first verse. Look at that phrase. Do you see it? The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. So that, that means Cyrus's spirit was moved. It was stirred. It was moved by God to do something. So when it says stirred up, it doesn't mean just like mixing it around like a bowl of soup. That's not what it means, that the Lord stirred up his heart. It means he moved his spirit so that he would do what God wanted him to do. That's what it means. That's why this That's why it's even mentioned in this verse. He wants you to know when when Cyrus issued this decree, it's because God was the one moving in his heart. 
to make it happen. So here, Cyrus is moved to free the Jews to support their work. Our text tells us that he gives back the furnishings of the temple that Nebuchadnezzar took away. So Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple, but he took all the treasure out first. And Cyrus is saying, take it back. Do you see that in verse 9? 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. This is amazing. Any Jew who wants to go back to Jerusalem is free to go. And he's giving an order. Help them. Help them as they go. And here are the furnishings that Nebuchadnezzar took away. Cyrus was moved to do this. Verse 1 is claiming God is the one who did it. Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He moves it wherever he will. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He moves it wherever he will, wherever he wants. We see that happening in Cyrus. He doesn't just do it to kings. Cyrus in this passage is not the only one whose heart is moved. Look at at verses 5 and 6. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go rebuild the house of the Lord that's in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Now, going back to Jerusalem would not have been an easy thing. It wouldn't because these people had lived, many of them, if not most of them, were born in exile. Some were not. Many, if not most, were homes. Extended family, they weren't going with you. Jobs. It was an over, over 900 miles, 1,500 kilometers on foot. And this was a journey that would take months, three to four months on foot. Dangers. I mean, Many people made their living just traveling around and attacking whoever would pass by their city, take their stuff. That's how you survive. A dangerous journey. But some people's hearts were moved to rebuild the temple. So verse 5 says, and verse 5 says that the one who did the moving was God. God moved their hearts. Cyrus's heart is stirred. Jewish hearts are stirred. God is the stirrer. Now, chapter 1 is setting up for us the story of Ezra, and it's relaying to us a massive historical moment. I mean, this had never happened before. It had never happened that a conquering king told peoples who had been conquered, you can go back and you can rebuild the temple of your God. Never. And it's happening here, and it's recorded for us. This is history. This is not a made-up story. 410 bowls of silver. This is history. That's a big deal. But more than just giving us history, this is telling us God is the one who's making the story move along in the way he wants it to go. God's doing it. I want you to see how he's doing it. Some people do get uncomfortable 
when they read about God doing things in people's hearts, we're more comfortable saying, yeah, God's in control. God's in control over history. History is his story. He does what he wants. It's his, his big picture that he's sovereign over. But this is telling us the way that God is moving the big picture in the direction he wants to go is by moving in the hearts of individuals to make it move that way. That's an amazing thing. Now, I want you to see, before we move to the next point, that this is not isolated. There are countless texts in the Bible of God working in people's hearts to bring about what he wants. Here are a few from the New Testament. And, and these examples in particular are to help you see that it's good news that God works in hearts. A lot of people hear that. Ooh, God does something to my mind or heart. He's not allowed to do stuff like that. I want you to see that it's good news. A few examples. First, it's good news that God changes people's hearts because that's how we're saved. John 6, this is Jesus. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Not one person in the history of the world has come to Jesus Christ without the Father drawing them in. We see that happen in the book of Acts. This is just one, again, of many examples. In the book of Acts, Paul is preaching at a riverside. There are women there who are listening to him teach. Acts 16, verse 14 says this. The Lord opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And she's saved. Just totally unashamed. Acts 16, 14 says, Paul's teaching, and there was one person there who got saved. And it's because the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was being said by Paul. You came to Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, you came to Jesus Christ because God invaded your space. He worked inside of you to, to turn on the lights, to make the penny drop, to open your heart, to see the truth that Jesus was real and that he was a treasure. That's the only way anyone is saved. And here's, here's why this is hopeful. Because it means that you can pray to God to save anyone and he can do it. It's not off limits. You say, God, please. Every time I try to talk to my dad about Jesus, I want him to, I want him to know you. Every time I try to talk about you, he just laughs and shuts me down. Or my mom, she won't even be in the same room as me when I try to talk about religion. If you ask, God, please do something, change their hearts, he's not going to say to you, not my job. He's in the business of changing hearts. We can ask him. I hope you see how hopeful that is. It means no one is too far gone. Who do you want to come to Christ? Ask God to change their hearts. He's in the business of doing that. 
and it's good news. It's good news for us. It's good news for those we love. It's not just good news for salvation. It's good news for the condition of your own soul right now. If you find your heart becoming hard, resistant towards God, I do. I know there are times where I'm like, things aren't like they were. I don't, I don't relish being with the Lord in prayer and in his word like I used to. What do you do in moments like that? You can cry out to God. We just sang, didn't we? Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Lord, take and seal it. God doesn't hear us pray that and say, sorry, you change your heart. He loves it. He says, that's, that's the kind of business I'm in. That's why the psalmist in Psalm 119, he prays, incline God, you, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. And God's not saying, no way, man. You do it. God loves it when we pray to help sincerely for our hearts. Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. This is God promising what he's going to do for the the new people of God, the church, us. So this is an Old Testament text, but he's talking about what he's going to do in the new covenant through Christ. Listen to what he says. This is what he's going to do to everyone who belongs to Jesus. I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. If you need God to change your heart, he's glad to do it. It's what he does by the Spirit. That's good news. From first to last, our salvation is a gift of God's grace. We talk about that a lot. Grace, that means it's free. That's what the word grace means. God is being kind to us for free. He doesn't take payment. We don't work for our salvation. We know that, right? Jesus, the son of God, eternally with God, became a man. He fulfilled the law on our behalf. That's gracious. Then he went to the cross and he died there suffering for wrath that we deserved so that we don't have to. That's gracious. And then he rose from the dead. Now he's seated next to his father and he's praying. He's interceding for us even now. That's gracious. But it's not just what God does outside of us that's gracious. He also turns our hearts so that we can see it and love it and embrace it. That's really good news. From first to last, when we see the Lord face to face, we will have no claim on our salvation. And we will be happier for it. Because you and I were made to glorify the greatness of God's grace. And from beginning to end, outside of us and inside of us, he gets the glory for being the giver. It's good news that God changes hearts amazing news. Now back to our passage. 
Chapter 1 tells us, okay, this big movement in history, the exiles, we thought they were done. God said, no. I'm going to bring him back, and we see him doing it, and he's the one who gets the credit for stirring hearts, stirring the heart of Cyrus, stirring the hearts of the Jews to go, and he does it for a reason. It's because he's committed to keeping his promises. Look at verse 1 again. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. So verse 1 is saying the reason that God stirred in Cyrus's heart to free the Jews is so that, in order that, the word that he had spoken earlier by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. So what did Jeremiah say that God was working to fulfill? Here's Jeremiah 29, verse 10. Jeremiah writes this, Thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So Jeremiah was around when Nebuchadnezzar was attacking Judah. Jeremiah was alive. And through him, God promised, you're going into exile. It's going to happen. But in 70 years, I'll restore you and I'll bring you back to this place. That's the promise. And that's what God does. So if you can get these dates in your head, 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar comes, overruns Jerusalem, destroys the temple. 586 B.C. Then Babylon is conquered by Persia. Cyrus issues his decree because God stirs his heart to do so. So that by 516, 70 years later, the temple gets completed. 70 years Just like God promised, the new temple is rebuilt. God is doing his work, stirring up Cyrus's heart, stirring up the hearts of the Jews in order to fulfill his promises. We see that through Jeremiah 29.10. But Jeremiah is not the only prophet who prophesied about the return. Isaiah did as well, the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah... God mentions King Cyrus by name. Now, Isaiah is not around when Nebuchadnezzar attacked Judah. He's he's dead. Isaiah wrote these words 150 years before Cyrus was around. So I want you to hear these. He mentions Cyrus by name. Hear this. Isaiah 44, 28. The Lord says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, this is a few verses later, I call you by your name. So God's saying, I'm, I, I just mentioned the name Cyrus. 
When Isaiah wrote this, people would have been like, Cyrus who? I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So God, God's saying, the reason I'm telling you 150 years before it happens, the name of the man who is going to cause Jerusalem to be rebuilt, it hasn't been destroyed yet. I'm going to give you the name of the man who's going to allow this city to be rebuilt and allow the temple to be rebuilt is so that you would know, that the peoples of this world would know, I'm in control. I am God and there is no other. I make promises so that when I fulfill them, you know I'm the one running this show. Titus 1-2 tells us that God never lies. Hebrews 6.18 tells us it's impossible for God to lie. It's essential to who God is that he's truthful. That, that basically means you can't just subtract truthfulness from God and still have God. If you take truthfulness away from God, he's not God. He is faithful. He is reliable. And he can never fail because he controls all of the future. That's what Isaiah is telling us. He said, I'm making these promises so that you know I don't fail because I control it. This is not just that God is really good at predicting things. He makes the things that he speaks beforehand come to happen. He can make crazy promises 150 years before because he controls what happens to ensure that they come to pass. And he wants you to see that. Us, who are living 2,500, 600 years after, so that we would see it and know this God is trustworthy. That's what you should take away from God's control and his promises. Right from the start of Ezra, this book is telling us why God uses his control over human hearts here, it's because he's committed to keeping his promises. He will use all of his control, including swaying human hearts, to make sure that none of his promises ever fails. So for you, this is application time now. This is not just saying, listen, God made promises to the people of Israel 2,600 years ago, and he kept it. God does that so that you and I would look at it and say, I can live on what God promises. If he keeps his word and he controls the future, I can believe anything he tells me. I can bank my life on it. So for you, there, there are promises in the scripture for us to trust today. Like 
If you trust God's promise to forgive your sin in Christ's death, he'll take it. He'll take your sin. This is the promise. I'll take your sin if you trust in Christ's death for you. Then your sin will be removed as far as the east is from the west. And it will be as though they were cast into the sea. Psalm 103.12 and Micah 7.19 promise that. And it must come to pass because God never lies. For those who love him, God promises that all things will work together for your good. He won't let that slip. That's Romans 8, 28. You hear that? All things work together for good, which means nothing will work for your bad if you love Jesus. He won't let it happen. He said it wouldn't happen, and he controls the future, so it won't. All things work for your good if you love him. You can live on promises like that. He always keeps his word. Or this, for those who belong to Jesus, he promises nothing will separate you from the love of Christ. You're going to need that someday. Someday you're going to feel like you've done something or things have happened to you so that you're cut off from the love of Christ. God will make sure by the perfect reliability of his character that nothing will ever separate you from the love of Christ. That's your promise in Romans 8.38. Here's more. If you cast your anxieties on him in prayer, if you're feeling anxious and you cast your anxieties, you say, tell God what's going on. He promises to exalt you at the proper time. And he promises to give you his peace. 1 Peter 5, 6 through 8, and Philippians 4, 6 through 7. Did you hear that? If you cast your anxieties on him, what an awesome promise. God's saying, cast your anxiety, throw them on me. And if you do, I'll exalt you. I'll give you my peace. Will he fail to do it? No, he cannot fail to keep his promises. He never does. If you bless those who cannot repay you for Christ's sake, he promises to repay you at the resurrection. That's Luke 14, 14. He won't fail to do it. You love people who can't pay you back? Jesus Christ himself promises that he will repay you at the resurrection, and he will, he must do it. What a God. The God of Ezra 1, the God of the whole Bible, always keeps his promises. He's committed by his own faithfulness And he controls everything, so nothing can stop him. That's what we see in this passage. So in summary, Ezra 1, an amazing thing in the history of the world happens. We've been walking with Israel. If you read in the Bible, now they're gone from the land. The temple, the place where the world could meet God, it's gone. And God does something amazing. 
He frees the people of Israel from their exile in a land 900 miles away. He gives them supplies to rebuild and refurnish the temple. And God is claiming that it's his initiation that does it in the hearts of men and women. He is Lord of hearts, and that's good news. He uses his sovereign power and control to fulfill all the promises that he's made. So he made promises in Jeremiah and Isaiah. He'll use all his sovereign control to keep them. That's what we see. And he will use all his sovereign control to keep his promises to you. So trust them. This is for us. This is, this is not an outdated story, Ezra, for some people in the past. This was written for our sake, us, so that we would know and trust this God who works in hearts and who always keeps his promises. Let's pray.